Good morning. What a wonderful morning so far, amen? I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, is how the Hebrews say it, but I'm not exactly uh, fluent in the Hebrew language, so I'm going to keep calling it like I called it as a child, Habakkuk, but I think it's Habakkuk, or Habakkuk is how you're supposed to say it, in case any of you care to know. As you're turning to Habakkuk, it's the 35th book in the Bible, 10 later than Lamentations, which we just finished, and it continues the theme of lament. We don't know too much about Habakkuk. We know he was a prophet. He fulfilled a priestly figure, kind of like Jeremiah did, and we know he gets involved in a dialogue with God. In order to get us into this text this morning quickly, to kind of dig into it, I want to tell you a fictitious story. Imagine a scenario with me for a minute. You are employed at a soda factory that you want to work at. You want to work at this soda factory, but you have certain grievances with your fellow employees. You feel like you've been patient with your boss, and your boss just hasn't acted to rectify the employee's malfeasance, tardiness, stealing product, lewdness, insubordination, conduct harmful to the soda factory breaking the code of conduct, the policies and procedures for this soda factory. We're going to say it's Coca-Cola, right? Because everybody knows Coke's better than Pepsi, right? Uh, yeah, I just alienated about half of you, didn't I? So I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But we're going to say it's Coke. Now, you fill the cup of your wrath is full with your boss, and your patience is wearing thin, and you have a decent relationship with your boss. You've been known to talk with him. So you approach your boss about this, this issue or these issues, and, and you say, our Coke factory's not functioning well. Why don't you rectify employee malfeasance? And then the boss looks you square in the face and says, oh, I'm very, very aware of what's going on in the break room. I know what the employees are doing, and I've got a plan to fix all this. But you wouldn't believe me if I told you what my plan was. Well, you'd sort of lean in and say to your boss, well, please do, you know, pray tell, tell me more. I'm going to allow Pepsi to take it over. All you Coke employees will be swiftly replaced with Pepsi-Cola factory workers over a two-year period. And you'd say, what? That's not what I had in mind. That's not the solution I had in mind. I've heard about those Pepsi workers, you'd protest. They're, they're employees. They're way worse than ours here at Coca-Cola. I had in mind reform, not revolution. Boss, you can't look on their malfeasance. It's worse than ours. You're too pure of a boss, and the poorest employees here now will be without work. How is that a solution? You thought you'd approached your boss on the moral high ground only to find out that your categories were blown. And then the boss comes back with an answer to this second complaint. How could you do that? And he says, I'm going to allow it to happen not just with Coke to Pepsi, but again and again and again. Coke taken over by Pepsi and then later Pepsi by RC Cola after some years and then RC Cola by, I don't know, Vess, you fill it in. And you get the picture. Because one day, I'm going to get the employees that actually have my heart for great soda. Not just the ones that are here for a paycheck. Not just the ones that give lip service to me as a boss. But the ones that have my heart for a great soda. One day, this is going to be an entirely pure soda factory with pure employees. And you'd be kind of like, whoa, not what I expected. In this lighter weight fictional account about business, you get into the flow of it. Habakkuk, the employee, approaches his boss with a complaint only to get a totally unexpected solution for the idolatry problem of his fellow employees. We see this in chapter 1. Then Habakkuk voices a complaint about the boss's answer. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then, next, the boss, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, replies with something of the nature of his interaction with all employees across all time. He kind of zooms out. Nations rise and nations fall. Revenge exists. One nation topples another nation and on and on. From Assyria, Israel to Assyria and Assyria to Babylon and Babylon to Persia and Persia to the Greeks and the Greeks to the Romans and on and on and on it goes. And God operates, like Peter Kreft said, like a, like a judo expert, allowing nations to use their own strength against themselves long term for his gospel purposes. It's impossible to see zoomed in 
So God helps us zoom out that we might see how His glory will fill the earth and how we must now live as His people by faith. Now that's the warp and woof of Habakkuk chapters 1 and 2, which we'll take this week, and chapter 3, which we'll take next. Uh, This book was written by Habakkuk around 600 B.C., maybe just prior to it, so 600 years before the birth of Christ. Habakkuk was a contemporary with other prophets like Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Daniel, possibly even Ezekiel. This book touches on themes, as you'll see, of unrighteousness and spiritual struggle, national consciousness, God's ways in the world, etc. It's kind of like Job in wrestling with similar questions of theodicy or how God is righteous in a world replete with human suffering. But this becomes more on a national instead of a personal scale, on a corporate instead of an individual scale, does Habakkuk. Habakkuk's just 56 verses in total length for the whole book. We'll just take 37 of those verses today in chapters 1 and 2. In word count, there are only nine other titles in the Bible that are shorter in length than Habakkuk. Only nine that are shorter. As a minor prophet, as it's called, Habakkuk stands after Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, and it stands just before Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi at the end of what we call the Old Testament. These 12 minor prophets are grouped together due strictly to the size of the books. The size of the books. They're smaller than the five larger prophetic books or major prophets, such as Daniel or Ezekiel. So they're just simply grouped by size. So if you take 12 plus 5, there are 17 books by prophets in the Old Testament, and there are books of law as well. In fact, the law and the prophets is a way to sum up the Old Testament. Jesus does this regularly. He quotes this way in the New. He talks about how to fulfill the law and the prophets through the law of love. He talks about himself as, as being the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets talks about. He is the fulfillment of it. He even interprets the Old Testament scriptures to the earliest believers in Luke chapter 24, records it, and he interprets the Old Testament to the earliest believers as things concerning himself. So when he talks about the Old Testament, he understands it to be talking about the coming Messiah or himself. It says in Luke 24 that everything written about me, Jesus said, in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which of course at that time was the Old Testament. Three out of every four pages in your Bible is what we call Old Testament. So we can't get old about it. We have to stay with it. We need to read it. We need to understand that God gives us his word for good purposes. We need to interact with all of scripture and not just the latter 25%. And so we look today at the Old Testament, particularly the section not called the Law, but the Prophets. And within the Prophets, one of the 17 books, a short book called Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as I'm going to call it. And these little thousand words plus 11 speak to us today in ways that may be more powerful than we at first might imagine. God never forgets His people. Even in the midst of this terrible time we're going to read about, Just before the fall of Israel to a terrible nation, Babylon, otherwise known as the Chaldeans, God still has His prophets. He still gives His word to His people, and He still has His people. Kind of like Elijah seeing the faithful knees that hadn't bowed to Baal in his time. So we see in our time that God never forgets His people. And Habakkuk gets a panoramic view of that as well. It is important to remember this when we are in times that are feverishly frustrating. We must look to the proclaimers of God's true word in the midst of the panacea of false prophets and false teachers that tell us what our itching ears want to hear in the flesh. We must continue to proclaim the excellencies of the one who sent us and who redeems us. By continuing to say so as the redeemed of the Lord, we will find focus on the face of Christ himself instead of everything that is all around us that seems to be going wrong. By focusing on that one true face, which 2 Corinthians 3 tells us we can focus on to behold His glory and to become like Him. By focusing on it, we will see more of what God is doing than simply what the devil is doing in the world. Because the prince of this age is passing, and the king of glory is coming, and he will be crowned. Amen? I'm thankful for members such as one this week that posted on our members page 
about something good going on on the mission field and reminded us, this individual did, to lift our eyes from the discouragements of the present and see the good things that God was doing in Africa. I think that's important for us to have a global and big picture view of what God's doing in the world. And yet, discouragement is real in the Christian life, isn't it? Don't you get discouraged? I know I do. It's difficult not to look around and get discouraged, especially when we see chaos and anarchy and difficulty and misunderstanding and injustice. Perhaps that's why Thessalonians says, therefore encourage one another with these words. The Lord gave us these words to help us through every situation, to help us process every situation that we face. He knew we would need a steady diet of encouragement. So he gifted his church with encouragers and commanded us to encourage one another by and as we meet together. Talks about it in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. So this meeting is to be an encouragement session at some level. Habakkuk writes this this poem of lament, a series of poems in this short book. And in this, he complains to God and God answers. And he complains to God and God answers. And then he ends with worship, with doxology. He ends with worship. A beautiful prayer, which we'll see next week. Today, I, wanna, I want you to be encouraged in your faith. That's my aim. And I believe that as you're encouraged in your faith, you'll better appreciate God's ways in this wayward world. You will better appreciate His manner of operation, God's ways in this wayward world. So I want to encourage you in your faith. And we're just going to take kind of our points for this, this sermon. We're going to take it right out of the flow of the text. So if you look at verse 1... When I read it, and I'm going to read it and talk about it, read it and talk about it. If you look at Habakkuk 1.1, you're going to see faith talks to God. And then when we get to chapter 1, verse 5, you're going to see that faith listens to God. And then when we get to chapter 1, verse 12, you're going to see that faith struggles with God, with how God works in the world. And then finally, when we get to chapter 2, you're going to see that faith lives by God. So if you're a note taker, chapter 1, verse 1, faith talks to God. Chapter 1, verse 5, faith listens to God. Chapter 1, verse 12, faith struggles with God. And then in chapter 2, faith lives by God. So let's take it on its parts this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, faith talks to God. It says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces. She has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. I'm sorry, that's how Lamentations begins. And it's similar to how Habakkuk, Habakkuk begins because it talks about how long, O Lord. So listen to the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, Habakkuk 1.1. And two, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. So instead of post-Exodus from their homeland now, this is their actual pre-Exodus where he's talking about it's going to come. Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you're not going to hear me. It's going to wind up like Lamentations. Chapter chapter 1, verse 2. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So this is like the 20 years prior to Lamentations 1. This is Lamentations 1 was describing, we've been exiled. It's terrible. It's happened. And Habakkuk is prophesying 20, 25 years earlier and saying, How long, O Lord, are you going to let these people, my fellow employees, live so wayward? And he's shocked by the answer. But you need to understand it's a legitimate question that I think we would talk to God about in prayer. We'd look around our, say, our church and we'd say, God, why is, why is this happening so badly? And I think we have a fairly healthy church and I love our church. But it's fair to say that amongst the people of God, the people of God don't always act like the people of God now, do they? And that's what was going on in Israel. And prior to Lamentations, the events of 586 B.C. and the two-year siege and the destruction... Habakkuk prophesied with other prophets like Jeremiah. And he said to the people, you must repent. You must repent or the Lord is going to actually allow you to be defeated 
by the Babylonians. And the prophets that talked this way were reviled by the people and the false prophets. No way, God will never let it happen to us. Uh uh-uh. uh. Even as they went on in their immorality, as they went on in their idolatry, as they went on in their economic injustice, as they went on and on and on in their sin, then they didn't think that God would punish them. And Habakkuk is saying here, prior to all the punishment, the law is paralyzed. There's bribery in the justice system. Everywhere I look, I look around and I just want to talk to you, God. This is not going well. How long, O Lord? And this phrase, how long, O Lord, that you see in chapter 1, verse 2 of Habakkuk, this is his voice of complaint. How long, O Lord, will you not hear? And it's, it's actually refracted in different places in the Bible. You see this in Psalm 13. You see it in Revelation chapter 6. How long, O Lord? How long will you let us go through this? And so this is a, 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 it is a prayer by a, by a faithful person, a person of faith. But it is a prayer nonetheless that has a myopic or a short view of what's going on in the world. He's not seeing the bigger picture. So God has to help him zoom out so that he can can figure out how to live zoomed in. Differently, God has to encourage Habakkuk so that Habakkuk, this priestly prophetic figure, can encourage the people. Because right now, discouragement is real and he is discouraged. All he sees in the city, the city of God, is violence. He sees sins. Destruction, strife, contention, they argue with each other. A broken justice system and a breakdown of the rule of law. The wicked pervert justice. The righteous feel surrounded. They're restricted. It's like they need to come up for air. And the spiritual leader is drawing God's attention to the suffering of his own people. Some of it because of the environment and some of it because the people themselves are sinning and wayward from God and thinking God would never, ever, ever allow this city to fall. But... It will, because they're idolatrous. Mark Vergop says that an idol is an object of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God. I want to ask you this morning, do you have any objects of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God? In the Old Testament, idolatry was praying to the God of thunder or the goddess of fertility because you needed rain and health of livestock in order to live. Today, idolatry isn't over. Idolatry is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination, more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God, as one author puts it, is anything so central and essential to your life that... Should you lose it, your life will feel hardly worth living. That's an idol. We worship idols. We allow them to control us because of what we believe they will give us. But they never give what they promise. Only the promises of the Lord fulfill and fulfill to the uttermost. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there is no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. Idols surface in the rubble of life. When God shatters our glass houses, we're left to wallow in the effects of sin in a sin-filled, suffering world. So the idols that we have that show themselves in actions of pride and covetousness and fear and immorality and self-sufficiency... They lie dormant, but then they pop up unexpected and unwelcomed in times of despair and destruction and the rubble of life. And when your life gets shook up, it's a great time to take an assessment of where the idols lie and to get them out. Because light hath no fellowship with darkness, and God will not long suffer with your idols. The Spirit wants elbow room in your soul. You've been remade. And cuddling up to your sin, that's not a good thing. Maybe it's been years for you like it had been for the people in Israel. Maybe you think that you're too far gone to live by faith. And I want to encourage you this morning that you're not. Walk with the Lord today. Hear from the Lord today. Talk to the Lord today. What we see first this morning is a complaint from Habakkuk to God. But as we've seen in this series, Learning the Language of Lament, At least when you complain to God, you're actually talking to Him, right? You're reaching back out. 
And the Lord is pleased to answer all of us, in a way, by answering Habakkuk. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your day, Habakkuk, that you would not believe if I told you. What a phrase, right? You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Listen, buddy, you wouldn't believe it, employee. If I told you I was going to do this soda factory, you wouldn't have any. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. So it makes Habakkuk sort of lean in. It's like, a, it's like an introduction. It gets us involved. And he says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And then he, he lays it down. Here's what he says. For behold, I'm raising up the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreadful and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They, ca- they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now that's idolatry amplified, isn't it? What is a guilty man before God? It's when your own might is your God. It's a God of yourself. Your own face is your idol. It's when your own might is your God. You know what happens to these things? They fade. They do. They fade. You young people think they won't. You think you'll be strong and vibrant forever. It won't be so. You can fight at it, you can kick against the goads, but guess what? One of these days, your body's going to lose muscle tone, your metabolism's going to slow, and fight as you may, organs are going to fail, and you are going to face your maker. And the question is not, did you steward it well through life? You should. The question is, did you live by faith and not just by sight? And the way to live by faith and not by, by sight is to, is to talk to God, but it's also to hear from God. That's the Christian life. It's not just talking, but it's listening. So faith talks to God, but now faith listens to God. We see this in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And mighty men will come and go and rise and fall. The question is, in the midst of all the rise and fall of nations, are you by faith lifting your eyes unto the Lord and seeing from His perspective what's going on in the world? Faith listens to God. But I have to ask you a question by way of warning this morning. Are you sure you want to know the ways of the Lord? Because they're not like our ways. They're not. It's why the prophetic books are so shocking to us. Is they jar us because God's just not like us. He's not like man. He's just not. I think that's why statements like, you wouldn't believe me if I told you what I'm going to do. Dr. Derek Thomas said it best when he remarked that part of the reason so many of us find the Bible difficult is because we have such a low view of sin. We have such a low view of sin. To put it another way, we all too often do not really believe we are unholy and that God is holy. My intent here is not to pick on anyone. I cannot tell you how many times I've failed to understand the depth of my own sin and the degree to which God is opposed to it. But the biblical authors, at least when they set the text to writing, did not have the same problem. The prophet Habakkuk, for example, notes that God is so pure that he cannot even look at evil. Chapter 1, verse 3. Habakkuk's point is not that wickedness is invisible to God, but that the Lord cannot tolerate evil in His holy presence. The Lord must destroy evil. In Table Talk magazine, Robert Rothwell writes it like this. Every day that God sustains our existence is a day we do not deserve. But because this blessing is so consistent, we tend to not look at it as a blessing. We come to think, often unconsciously, that we do not actually deserve destruction. A story like what's told in Habakkuk and in Lamentations can be shocking to us because it describes what is so irregular. God tends to wait a long time to execute His wrath so dramatically. And we can be fooled into thinking He will never execute it at all. But we must never let ourselves believe for that, that for very long. Scripture promises a final judgment and a lake of fire to all sinners who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 says, It is gracious for God to give this story to us as His people and for all generations. I'll tell you why it's gracious. It's because story like this points to the judgment to come. And in doing so, reminds us God will not abide sin forever.
It encourages us to look for reconciliation to the holy God that's not like us, so we will not suffer an even worse and eternal judgment. And so leaning into God, we hear hard things from God. We talk to Him, but then we listen. And by hearing hard things and wrestling with His way, we learn to endure. God disciplines those that He loves, the Bible says. He loves us like children. He disciplines those that He loves. But God punishes those who never yield to Him, and He punishes them for all of eternity. God doesn't punish us eternally. Really doesn't punish us because it's never punitive for the sake of just being punishment-oriented. God disciplines us. He won't let us stay in our sin. As His covenant people, He disciplines us for holiness, that we might be like Him. And that is key to understanding this. It's key to understanding it. Faith talks and hears from God by word and prayer. But thirdly, faith struggles to grasp God's ways. Key to understanding this. Faith struggles to grasp God's ways. Have you ever struggled in your faith? I mean, when you pause long enough to just think about what God's asking of you. He's, he's asking of you this kind of trust that can only be verified on the back end. We get little positive affirmations along the way. But if you gauge whether or not God is trustworthy by whether or not He gives you the, all the money that you want or the perfect relationship that you want or the health and wealth that you want, if you gauge your willingness to have faith by that, well, first of all, it's not faith. Because you're looking at what you can see. It's sight, it's not faith. And the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. But secondly, that's just not the way that God's structure is set up. Therefore, faith has to struggle with the ways of God that are higher than ours. It, it, it talks to God, and then it hears from God, and then it struggles to grasp God's ways. And I think that's what's going on when Habakkuk offers a second complaint or a retort to God's first answer. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Now, this is like when the soda factory illustration, this is like when the employee has gone to the boss and he thinks he's on the more high ground than the boss says, I'm going to let Pepsi take over. This is like him coming back now and saying, you surely wouldn't do that. And that's kind of how this reads. Are you not from everlasting God? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. Oh, you, a rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You do... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What a phrase, right? The man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. That's how idolatrous the Babylonians are, right? For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you going to let the Babylonians do this? And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post, Habakkuk says. I'll station myself on the tower and look out to see what you're going to say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So, in other words, you need to answer me, and I'm going to tell you now that I don't think you're supposed to operate this way, and... I want you to talk to me in such a manner that I really think I already know what you're going to say. You surely don't mean it. You're just bluffing, right? Like the Bible, you're not going to let your people get, get disciplined, are you? And this is what the Lord says in chapter 2. Lord, answer me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. As people, I want, to, I want you to make this so clear to people that when they pass by, it's like a billboard. They can't miss it. I want you to write this down. And then we'll finish reading it in a moment. But I want to say a few things about what we've read so far. Faith struggles to grasp God's ways, number three. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 1. Faith struggles to grasp God's ways. Ever since our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden, We've had a difficult time grasping our sin condition. We just have. And we, I do perennially too. We've been about the work of recreating God in our image instead of the other way around. And that's idolatry. That's the essence of idolatry. 
as Christians, we profess to want to be made in the likeness of Christ or to be Christ-like. That's the definition of Christian. But Christ is unique, a one of a kind in the world. Unlike any other man, we think we want to make God more accommodating to our ways. That's how we pray. God, listen, I'm seeing this over here. It's kind of uncomfortable for me. Please fix it so we can keep the Coke factory going like it is. We think that's what we want. And that's why in this third point you have to lean into this. Faith struggles to grasp God's ways because His ways aren't like ours. He's just not going to orchestrate things the way that you would because He's God and you're not. That is the rub, and it is hard. We think we want to make God more accommodating to our ways, but God is so much more than our ways. Faith is required over and over again to recognize God is so different than us that in order to make us like Him, He necessarily has to make us different. We say things like, I'm basically the same person I was before Christ. That's not the Christian statement to make. No, no true Christian anywhere ever remains the same basic person as they were before they met Christ. You've misunderstood the gospel if that's the kind of Christianity you think you've embraced. That's not why we said, buried with Christ, rise to walk a brand new life. We said that because the Bible says it in Colossians and Romans, but we said it because it's a new life. God is so different than you that in order to make you like Him, He has necessarily to make you different. And me too. Christ is God and God changes man. And getting that into us is not a quick task. You're being made like Christ is a lifetime process and it involves pain, sifting, pruning, molding. God uses suffering to mold us. We have the Spirit. The process is assured, but we aren't there yet. You're needing to be made different each season as you more deeply understand His Word through prayer. Prayer is you talking to God. Word is you hearing from God. This is you grappling with it, writing about it, praying about it, talking to other believers about it, being encouraged through it. Faith struggles to grasp God's ways. I love that verse. It's, I don't, it's just, I don't love it, but it's so interesting. In chapter 1, where uh, it, he, it's a relative righteousness. The man more righteous than he, chapter 1, verse 13 at the end. I mean, would you, really, you understand we are better than them, right? And that's kind of the baseline of our thoughts about what's going on in our world. I mean, you do realize, God, that we're, we're better than them, right? What a deflection from what God expects of His covenant people. I mean, God, you do realize we're, we're better than the people in that communist country, right? What a deflection from His call of you to holiness. I mean, I mean the, 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 the staunchness of this, Colin Smith talked about it this way. He said, it would have been as if God used Saddam Hussein to chasten us. I mean... The, the, just the shock of it. You'd be so mad at first. You couldn't believe God would let the Babylonians punish Israel. You say, well, that's not really like that. How is it not? Israel is God's chosen people. And the Babylonians come in and just smack them. They, they rule for 100 years, 70 years in exile. All their kids are hauled off. And God says, I let them do it because you wouldn't stop your idolatrous immorality. I let them do it. And you say, man, I, I tell you what, now, pastor, the, the church is not Israel. I don't think you quite understand what old covenant Israel was. Let me put it this way. If the church is the people of God and Israel was the people of God, we got to get the idolatrous immorality out of the church before God chastens us with some foreign power. You say, God would never do that. Why else is it in here? If you're an idolatrous, immoral person this morning, I want you to understand God has been patient with you but he won't be indefinitely. Hidden sins will get shook up and come to light, and you must repent. You must repent. God is always pleased to relent, but you must repent. God is not like you. He doesn't do his business like you, but he wants, you to, bring, he wants to bring you into his business. 
which means he has to make you like him, which means you have to be made different. One apologist said, If the one who comes before you is hurt by willful abandonment of God's majesty, then how can he be helped by an evangelist with the same problem? That is, willful abandonment of his, ma- of his majesty. If, if the one that comes to you is being blind, blinded to the majesty of God and the apologist is blind to the majesty of God, then it'll be like the blind leading the blind and they'll both fall into the ditch. And he uses that to frame this. The triviality, the triteness, and the silliness which characterizes much of evangelical Christianity today. The triviality, the triteness, and the silliness which characterizes much of evangelical Christianity today will not be successfully covered with the whitewash of the same argument. Why is it that our modern declarations of truth lack the triumphant and majestic tone of the prophets? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, neither faints nor grows weary? There is no searching of His understanding. Have you not heard? That's how we approach the unbeliever. We are presenting that God to the people that want nothing to do with that God. They've grown accustomed to the cozy God that lives somewhere just above the worship centers. We're talking about the maker of heaven and earth. He's so high above the top of this roof line, you can't touch it. He had to come down to you. That's who we're talking about. And you don't win them by talking about God as if he's just right there. He is forceful and majestic and glorious and indescribably good and indescribably just. And Habakkuk needs to recover that robust view of God, not that diminished view of God that he's got by looking at all the problems all around him. And now he's going to partner with God to fix it. No, he needs to look at the robust view of the God of the universe and worship him and then tell everybody the plain spoken truth about him. Don't whitewash the same unmajestic arguments of the unbelievers and expect to win them to faith in Christ. It won't happen. It's kind of like living like them, conducting ourselves like them, and then telling them they should come to church. Why would they want that thing that hasn't changed your life fundamentally? Why would they want that? They say, well, if we're just nice enough to people, they'll come to church. It doesn't work. And it wouldn't matter if it did. Tell them the truth about the grandeur of God. Cast a vision of them of a God who is, that you've met, that's personal to you, that Habakkuk can complain to and listen to and grapple with. Tell them about that God. The Bible says if Jesus be lifted up, he'll draw them in unto himself. Lift Jesus high. He is anyway. Living with this tension, we can basically submit to the governing authorities most of the time. And sometimes, like maybe the Canaanite conquest and judges and the Davidic monarch and the American Revolution, perhaps, sometimes we rebel as Christians. Sometimes we're a part of that. Napoleon's era yielded what's known as the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Ours is not to wonder why, ours is just to do then die. Well, ours is not like that. Listen to me, church. Ours is different than Napoleon's soldiers. Ours is to wonder why. That's what Habakkuk is doing. It's what Job did. It's what Jeremiah did in Lamentations. Ours is to wonder why. And ours is to do then die. It's both. Life prepares the people of faith for eternal life entered to through the portal of death. This is the way of the master himself. So we live by faith. But God doesn't leave us without any philosophy for how, how God can remain silent during human suffering, for what the experts call the issue of theodicy. He leaves us books of theology to develop and philosophies to help us during suffering. The Old Testament prophets are proof positive that God helps when we hurt. These writings are for us now. And once Habakkuk hears this answer in chapter 2 that I'm about to read, his faith soars. We get chapter 3 from it. Habakkuk worships. He leads us in worship. We'll see that next week. Come back for that. But we see finally here that faith lives by God. Doesn't just talk to God. Doesn't just hear from God. Doesn't just grapple with God. But literally, faith lives by God. 
now and always and forevermore. Faith lives by faith. Faith lives by God. Hear how God's people will live by faith with respecting during times of lament, during times of pain. They live not on power or appetite fulfillment alone, but by their faith and the perspective of what's going on in earth that is going to be filled with one day the knowledge of the glory of God. We see it in chapter 2, verses 4 and 14. Listen to it now. Live, faith lives by God. The Lord answered Habakkuk. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run. Who reads it? Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. For if it seems slow, wait for it, it'll surely come. It won't delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Put a pin in that. Verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he's never had enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples, right? When we... we we never have enough. When we get what we want, we never have enough. Now, verse 6 lays out five woes. You can follow them that way if you want to. This is the Lord saying, I'm going to punish Babylon too. After Babylon discipline is used to discipline you and call you back to your faith to live by faith, I'm going to actually punish them. And listen to how this goes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Shall not all these take up their taunt, their song against him, with scoffing and riddles for him? And say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will, you not, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in him. Woe, this is another woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe, verse 12, to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. They never get ahead. The earth, for the, or, the earth will be filled with the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As the waters covers the sea, so one day will the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's going to happen. Another woe, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You, have, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Talking to the Babylonians. Drink yourself. And show, show, show your uncircumcision, your lack of covenant sign with me. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory, your current glory. The Babylonians reigned about 100 years. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to, the, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Wow. A metal image, a teacher of lies. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Woe to him, look at this final woe, who says to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it at all. But the Lord in his holy temple... Let all the earth keep silence before him. And we'll see next week Habakkuk comes back with praise. But he says here, you're going to endure and I'm going to punish the Babylonians. And that's how it's going to be. A little bit earlier, I used the illustration of, that Peter Kreft uses that God is sort of doing a, a bit of a judo move with the powers of the world, the world powers with the rise and fall of nations. There's problems with drunkenness and consumption and nakedness in all the wrong places and no covenant promises, no circumcision, no baptism in our case. There's all these things that are going on in the world and there's this magnanimous message that your enemies need to hear, same as your people. It's about the majesty, the might of God. The whole earth will be filled with His glory. Like waters cover the sea, the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. Don't let yourself be entrapped simply by what you see in the news cycle. Take an inventory and then take ten looks to the Lord. Take an inventory and then look to the Lord. Because the Lord's glory 
will be known. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the whole entire earth. And sinful, immoral idolatry will not fill the earth on that day. The earth will be silent before the holiness of God, chapter 2, verse 20 says. Idols cannot teach. We will be silenced. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. The Lord in His holy temple silences people before Him, chapter 2, verse 20 says here. And then there is that verse. That jewel in the middle of the book, chapter 2, verse 4. Would you look at that with me again, please? Because that is a great place to bring our sermon together at the end here today. Look at what's embedded in the middle of this book written 600 years before Christ's birth. Chapter 2, verse 4. In the middle of this question of theodicy and all these concerns by the prophet Habakkuk, talking and listening and grappling, struggling with the ways of God, the Lord says this in His final statement. Write this down. He says this, and Habakkuk's satisfied by it, and we should be too. The righteous shall live by faith. The rebels of God are prideful in their soul. They have no time for the Word of God. They don't have time for all this nonsense. They'll take a little of it, but they don't want the robustness of it. They don't want to grapple with it. They want it here in God because it's gone because they want a God in their own image, which is no God at all. Their guilty is charged. Their might is their God. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Listen to how three times in the New Testament... The Lord God uses this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, part B. Listen to Romans chapter 1. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. Rome was the new superpower. the new Babylon of the day, 600 years later. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. You see it? The righteous shall live by faith. And so how is that relevant? Well, Paul makes that verse real relevant. He grabs Habakkuk and preaches to us. And here's what he writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, Babylonians. They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among them. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans chapter 1 verses 15 to 27. The righteous will live by their faith. And faith in the majesty of God prevents us from delving into all of these sinful, idolatrous, and immorality, immoral practices in our lives. Listen to the lead into the hall of faith and the verses that come just after our encouraging one another that we began this sermon with. When we meet together as believers, we're to encourage one another, Hebrews 10 says. Listen to this verse quoted in that same chapter, Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For... Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10, 38. My righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. And so we live by the word. And Galatians, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse as well in Galatians 3. And finally, hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. Abraham, 2000 B.C., being talked about at the turn of the B.C. to the A.D., and we're reading about it after 2000 A.D. You're sons of Abraham by faith, and all the nations will be blessed by faith. Faith that talks and listens and struggles, and faith that we live by. Faith lives by God Himself and His majesty. It says here, So then, verse 9, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4b. There it is again, central to our understanding of what's going on in the world when there are problems is the gospel itself. Galatians 3 goes on to say, But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessings of Abraham do not come. They do not come through Ishmael. The blessings of Abraham come from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The blessings of God come to us through Jesus Christ from the line of David, and His might will be on display in the final day. And understand this, you cannot live by your works and get to the Lord. The law is not of faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, the Bible says in the law. So what did Jesus do? He became a curse so you wouldn't have to be accursed. 600 years after Habakkuk, so that his apostles could quote the prophet Habakkuk, he hung up on a tree, accursed, so that all God's right wrath on every sinner from the foundations of the world to the present could be poured on him that we might have his righteousness as our own. The gospel is very simply that we live by faith, faith in what Jesus did on our behalf, his substitute righteousness for us. He got the punishment on the cross. We get the grace that he deserved. He did that for you, but you have to receive it. You do not get eternity with the holy God by thumbing your nose at his sacrifice for you. If that sacrifice isn't good enough, then you will forevermore be punished in hell, separated from God. That is the nature of God. It is his project. It's how he's making a true and better soda factory for all of us. He is doing something that if he told us about it, we wouldn't believe it until we have faith. And by faith, we see. And one day, our faith will become sight. Interestingly, Babylon turns up again at the end of the Bible. Babylon is long gone by the time John wrote Revelation and Rome is the superpower. John's exile is not thinking Rome so much as Babylon in his exile on the Isle of Patmos and he writes a summary of all the rising of powers and defiance of God and their falling, and John sees Babylon as fallen. He writes, fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and he sees Christ coming in glory. The banner is lifted up, faithful and true. Our God Almighty reigns forever and forever. That's where history is headed. It's headed to the eternal reign of Christ. How frequently prayer and fasting are coupled. Some things only come out by it. Consider why our idolatry and our immorality continues to prevail in our churches today, and lift up your voice to God in prayer and hear from Him, and fast and struggle with His ways. May our church be marked by this faith that the world knows nothing of. Today you witnessed baptism. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, but you've never been baptized, this is your next step. You should see an elder immediately after service to discuss your faith and your future baptism. I hope that you will consider these things today. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to live by faith as your righteous people, made new by Christ, filled with your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.